folks, it's Robert Berry, and welcome to Retro Crush, the podcast episode 101. Got a really fun interview here for you today with Zach Parsons of SomethingAwful.com, who wrote a great book called My Tank is Fight, Deranged Inventions of World War II. It's about an hour long, and uh, kind of introduced a lot of the book in the interview, so let's just go right on to it. This is a phone interview had a little earlier in the week, and uh, I think it's pretty fascinating, if I do say so myself. So I hope you enjoy it, and uh, we'll be here at the end to give you some more information about the next podcast. So enjoy our interview with Zach Parsons here. My Tank is Fight, Deranged Inventions of World War II. Uh, we're talking to Zach Parsons here, who's uh, the author Hello. of the book. Hello. And, um, you know, I have to say, I'm not typically a fan of uh, military history, especially in, in book form. That's always just seemed like one of those things that... Uh, you know, just over too intimidating for me to take, but but uh, boy, I mean, this this is just a, an incredibly accessible and fun read. I mean, you've got you know uh, these 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 weapons uh, separate uh, all sorts of inventions separated by uh, land, air, and sea, basically, and um, you know you you get a, a little uh, an illustration, an overview of it, the real development history, and how far these things actually got to completion, and, and some technical specs. And then I, I really uh, enjoyed how you take each thing further as far as showing, uh, okay, let's say this thing really was developed, what might have happened, and then sort of an ongoing fictional uh, narrative that accompanies each one that sort of all ties together loosely through the book. I mean, uh, was this? Did you? What sort of trial and error did you go through before deciding on a format like this to present this information? <coughs> Well, um, you know, you mentioned making it accessible. Um, mm-hmm. That that was always a goal of mine in the writing process. Um, I know, you know, World War II games and stuff like that, movies, really popular, but a lot of people don't necessarily want to read the book <laughs> that, the, that the movie's based on. Sure. Um, and I, you know, the exciting inventions was a way to combine that to make it more accessible to people, to just, you know, make it more fun to people. And, um, you, you know, the process for writing it, a, a lot of it was trial and error. Um, I based it on the articles I wrote for somethingawful.com, uh-huh. but I kind of, you know, I started with that as my baseline, but then I would add different components, like the fictional element wasn't there, <clears throat> and the original illustrations obviously weren't there, and, you know, I just built it up from that. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. In some ways, it kind of reminded me of some of these uh, newer documentaries you see on the Discovery Channel, where it's like, uh, let's suppose we put cameras back that could actually look at dinosaurs or you know creatures on other planets, and and just kind of fleshing that out and, and making it really interesting to see, you know, sort of what might have been with World War II history. Yeah, um, that that definitely you know. um, one one along those lines. One of the things that I thought of when I was working on the book was they've done those documentaries where they take an animal and they like figure out its statistics and then they build like a mechanical animal to show how like how powerful the jaws of an alligator are uh-huh. you know, that that kind of came to mind when I was working on the book yeah it's it certainly reads uh really quick and, and nice I, I think people that that may not otherwise think that they would want to check out a you know his history uh, nonfiction like this might be really surprised with what they see here um li- little bit about the book here to to go into um 
this takes uh, you're looking at stuff from World War Two. So I mean, most of this is you know more or less late 30s through the the, the late 40s, I guess. Yeah, it, and, uh, I think most of it is. I think the earliest invention touched on is like 1936, which would be the the U-boat cruiser. Mm-hmm. Well, what, well, what what's interesting? I mean, what made World War II such a, a special time for so many crazy weapon inventions? I mean, it seems that the the scope and 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 uh, just way out their quality of some of these weapons is just so far beyond anything you hear scientists trying to come up with today. I mean, it just seems like they had such a, a wide open, clean slate of, you know, whether it was, you know, crazy spacecraft that could bounce off the atmosphere or, and just things yeah. like that that just that did not exist in the real world at that point, but yet they were shooting for this stuff. I mean, what, what, why was that such a fertile time for science and, and weapons to, to blend together like that? Well, I think the, the easiest and most important answer to that question is just that it was a total war. I mean, the whole world was embroiled in this war. So every nation, not just Germany, which is largely the focus of the book, just went all out trying to come up with new ideas. Uh-huh. And I think, I think in modern conflict, you still see that sort of um, willingness to take risks on new technology. Um, it's just not to the extent, and, you know, to be... To be honest, the Germans also had sort of a, a madness about it that went with all the other nations' you know own pursuits. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear, uh, I guess, stories about you know that Hitler would consult with mystics and psychics and use the occult to, you know, it just pretty much seemed they just had a at one point just untapped large amounts of money devoted to coming up with some of this crazy stuff. I mean, it's it's, it's really the fact, I mean, and, and Germany obviously plays a huge part in the the book here. Why, why did Germany have more of this stuff than the other countries in, in development? Do you think <clears throat> was it just the ambition, or? Well, I, I think um, you know if you compare it to the United States, the United States had a lot of different eyes looking at the problems, and there was no one person just sort of you know micromanaging what what happened. And uh-huh. with with the Germans, Hitler personally involved himself in every one of these projects. Pretty much, he would listen sometimes to his advisors, but he basically did what he wanted. So you know, <laughs> most other countries had some, you know at least a committee of sorts that would decide what got money and what didn't. True, he didn't have to convince Congress to shell out the cash for this stuff, exactly like that. Now, um, I, I noticed you mentioned at one point in this book that. You know, perhaps if uh, Germany was able to, I mean, so for example, naming off some of the things that Germany uh, pursued in here, that you've got, um, you know, things as small as uh, infrared uh, night vision, some of the earliest forms of that to use uh, for guns, uh, for, for for nighttime sniper use and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, to things like uh, sort of helicopter backpacks to just even you know, long-range missiles and, and whatnot. And, and you mentioned in a few of these sections that had Germany had more success and, and, and proceeded and got some of these things off just the model and blueprint stage, that the war may have actually ended quicker uh, because it may have just broke them financially and, and not allowed them to continue. 
Yeah, I think in the narrative of the book and in the the alternate history aspect of the book, I kind of wanted to make it clear that while some of these were good ideas, you know, very much ahead of their time, they were all real detriments to to the German war effort because they all sapped money, engineering resources, material, and, you know, they just basically wasted stuff that the Germans did not have to waste as they were being, you know, pounded into dirt by five different countries. So so really sort of Hitler's, you know, untamed ambition to conquer the world, ultimately, I mean, what, what was... His, his pursuit of getting some of these crazy things designed was that, you know, part of what helped ultimately break Germany at the same time. You think, or well, I, I think that has been a theory that has been put forward by a number of historians. Um, I, I don't know that there's any real chance that Germany could have won the war once they started fighting the Soviet Union, um, but they just, you know, spent tons of money on stuff like jet fighters and you know the mouse which is in the book was pretty much a, a ready for production model and they had just poured tons of resources into this tank that was useless I mean it, it, they they could make maybe 10 of these tanks and then they could make if they didn't make those 10 tanks they could have made you know 150 of their Panzer IV tanks Right now, the, the mouse was basically, um, at the time, uh, and maybe today still, the, a giant tank. Yeah, yeah, it was extremely heavy. It was um, about 200 tons, and I think um, the Abrams tank is about 70 tons. So wh- why did they want to build such a, a monstrous giant tank? I mean, was it just a, a fear factor thing, or to, to you know, intimidate towns as they drove in, or was there any real tactical reason to have something so gigantic like that as a tank? Well, I think they thought there was a tactical reason to have that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think that sort of obsession with creating bigger tanks in particular came from the nasty surprise the Russians gave them. Um, the German, you know, the Germans' tanks were not really especially superior to the Allied tanks, but they thought that with their training and, you know, their veterans, they would have the ability to take out the Russians pretty easily. And then the T-34 arrived on the scene, and, you know, their uh, their 50-millimeter guns, 37-millimeter guns just bounced off the front. Mm-hmm. And then they saw themselves then in sort of a very specific arms race about tanks, you know, focused on tanks with the Soviet Union. And... You know that the Soviets sort of abandoned it. I mean, they did keep upgunning their tanks to compete with German armor, but the, the the Soviets gave up on making these giant tanks, and the Germans just, you know, focused in on that. Do do tanks really ultimately serve much of a purpose in modern military uh, anymore? I mean, is it something that uh, I mean, are armored vehicles uh, all that crucial in modern warfare compared to how? It was back in World War Two, or is uh, the air stuff made it more um, obsolete in some ways? Or well, uh, you know, I I understand the point you're making, and, and definitely in a, oh, a conflict like Iraq, you see, you know, armored vehicles and stuff being destroyed by you know spare artillery rounds that are buried underground. Right. But I think the tank for the foreseeable future will have a role in conflict. Um, 
first of all, I mean, if we ever went to power or, or ever went to war with a you know first-rate power like China or you know a, a rogue European state, um, we would definitely see armored combat that you know would test our our Abrams tanks. Uh-huh. And I think you know even in Iraq, vehicles like the Abrams and 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 you know the Bradley. Mm-hmm. They, they do come in handy. I mean, <laughs> they the RPG is the bane of uh, of the Humvee, and they can send an Abrams in, and it'll just shrug off RPG rounds. So, yeah, it's still useful. Now, what, now, speaking of tanks, one of the, the the crazier inventions that you talk about in here was uh, from a U.S. inventor uh, named J. Walter Christie, yeah. who uh, was working on ultimately uh, an airborne tank. And it, as cool as that might sound in your mind to think of this, you know, flying tank, I mean, this was something that more or less looked like it had a Wright Brothers plane strapped to the top of it and would fly into battle dr- and then drop this tank off in theory. Um, I mean, how close did that actually come to getting made? Well, he he built prototypes and shopped them around. I mean, it was, like you said, it, it definitely had sort of a, even at the time, an anachronistic feel to it. It, it was a biplane, you know, it hooked into the the drive system of the tank and spun a propeller on the front of the biplane. And the Russians, you know, got a lot of mileage out of Christie's work on suspensions with their, you know, their BT tanks, and uh, the T-34 sort of evolved from that. Um, but the the plane was just a disaster. I mean, he tried a whole lot of different versions of it, including airdrop tanks and you know, flying tanks that would glide, and I mean, none of them really worked. The Soviets did try it with, uh-huh. you know, kind of a ripoff of that, and and they got theirs to fly, but they, they obviously did not build many of them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they would pretty much be viewed by, I imagine, the soldiers as sort of just a, a big death trap. Oh <laughs> I mean, yeah, be this I, clunky target flying by, and you could just be shooting the crap out of that thing before it landed, I would I, I, I mean, in perfect conditions, that thing would be a death trap. I, yeah. it, it would not fly well at all, and I, it would be underpowered for, you know, propelling it forward, so it would just be at risk of crashing at pretty much any moment. But, now, you mentioned here with Christie, for example, I mean, though some of his crazier ideas uh, ultimately didn't pan out, his pursuit of those... You know, he he was really there for making a, a a super fast tank that could handle terrain as well, and and like you said, the the Russians really you know benefited from the suspension designs, yeah, and things like that. Now that, that's kind of interesting in in that respect too, because here you have this American inventor that is ultimately spurned by the U.S. government's military as far as not really wanting to buy into his designs, and so the Russians. Uh, Cash in on that. I mean, was, was that even legal at the time? Or oh, it was. It was definitely questionable. Um, he he sold his prototypes to several countries. Um, England based a tank off of one of his um, suspension prototypes, and I think Poland, perhaps. There were several nations. Um, but yeah, it was all kind of dubious whether or not it was legal. And it, you know, it it probably did not help his relationship with the U.S. military that when they. D- you know, did not like his design. He went and you know, sold it to the sort of enemies. <laughs> well, and I and I like th- it's such a, a different time then too, in that you can have 
you know, w- one single scientist who becomes almost a, a celebrity of sorts, shopping and designing these weapons around, it, you know, it, it seems in, in today's world, you know, that's more done by corporations and committee that are a lot more careful with money and lie. I mean, you don't really seem to think about a, a single man shopping it's, ideas it, it, around it like this, you know. It, it does still happen, though. Um, if you look at that guy in Australia who invented Metal Storm, that that um, gun that like uses electricity to fire off a whole bunch of bullets really fast. Uh-huh. Um, it, he he's the you know the toast of the industry now. There's all kinds of companies trying to get their hands on his product and try to you know figure out different uses for it. And he's just one guy in Australia who in his garage in in, his, in you know his own personal machine shop he put together this invention and. You know, people people are interested in it, but I do agree with your your overall point that um, it 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 was very much a personality based industry at the time. Yeah. Um, so I guess like you, like you said, I mean, you've got a promotional vehicle like World War II to, uh, to <laughs> showcase your uh, yeah. work. You're going to stick out in history and, and be in the public eye a lot yeah, more than just yeah. a cr- crazy guy. I, in fact, going off the subject of World War II a bit, but there's this guy, you, I'm sure you've seen videos of his stuff on the internet too. Uh, he developed, uh, one of the things he did was the, the bear suit where you can uh, interact with grizzly bears. Yeah, the and the earth sign observation suit, I think yeah. is what it was called. Yeah. And, and, and he's developed this like fireproof clay uh, as well, where you can yeah. make this armor out of it and you mm-hmm. have like a blowtorch right next to it on top of his brain and it doesn't even... Uh, Conduct enough heat to change his head temperature. You know, it's just so it's 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 neat to see that there's still crazy scientists out there uh, that's coming up with some some nifty stuff there. Um, yeah, there's a a lot of uh, really cool what if situations in your book, and uh, you know you always hear about the old veterans that are you know well you know we'd all be speaking German if we weren't weren't helping you out there or whatever, but w- would Germany really have had the means to keep control of the European countries they invaded if America didn't get involved? Um, you know, that uh, that's a difficult question, and uh-huh. there's a lot of debate on that sort of thing in the history books. Um, I know, <coughs> um, excuse me, the, um, the Soviet Union a lot of times resents America's view that we single-handedly won the war. And obviously, we did not single-handedly win sure, the war. Sure, sure. But there is, you know, a, a case to be made that without us being involved at all, without Lend-Lease, us giving aid to England and the Soviet Union, I mean, we sent tens of thousands of trucks, thousands of tanks, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of food and supplies to, to the Soviet Union. And, you know, even without that, without that and our military effort, you know, it would have been a lot longer of a war. There would have been a lot more people dying in the Soviet Union and England and right. um, in Germany, too. I mean, it was good for Germany that we got involved. Um, but to answer your question of whether or not uh-huh. Germany, if they had won somehow, could, could hold on to things, I don't think an occupying power can ever really hold on to something, and I think that's becoming more and more clear in the modern era. I think... You know, yeah, I mean, it's something as small as Iraq. I mean, yeah. for example, that we we can't even take care of business there, and we're you know arguably the 
the one country that should have been able to pull that off, you know. Well, it, it, I mean, in 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 France, the, the 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 French resistance, there was a government in France, the Vichy, that that cooperated with the Germans, and uh-huh. yet still the Germans were plagued by the French resistance. So you know, obviously, they would have had trouble holding on to parts of the Soviet Union as, as well. Yeah, that, that's a, it's pretty interesting. And what I think, I mean, and how unified was really Germany as a people uh, behind? I mean, we're just was a good chunk of the population just too scared to really speak out against Hitler, so they were just going along with it, or um, else. I mean, was that was that, or was there really a big national pride to own the world? I mean, was that? Well, I, I think I think yes to both questions. Um, I, I don't know that Germans were innately bloodthirsty or anything of the sort, um, but Germany after World War One was experiencing, you know, a catastrophic economy. They they they, would, they had to wait in huge lines. Everyone was out of work. I mean, it was a Great Depression there, like it right. was here. And the Germans, Hitler, you know, basically got them out of that depression. And you know, people get in trouble all the time for saying that, <laughs> but but it's true. He he set up work programs. That, that got a lot of Germany out of that depression, uh-huh. and and um, then then from that point, people a lot of times would see the advantage of you know oh well I'll join the Nazi Party and I'll get a better job I'll get paid more, and and you know that became the way that they became Nazis that they became indoctrinated was just it you know it didn't seem like a big deal to just sign here get a card you know whatever say you're a Nazi, and then you know I I get paid a dollar an hour more or whatever it was, you know. Yeah, it wasn't a union so much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it was the opposite of a union. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let me see here. Uh, I'm kind of getting off track here a second here with what I was going to read here. Um, uh, you mentioned a man named Jeffrey Pike who uh, once had, uh, I guess he was uh, an English uh, scientist? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he he had an idea to send hundreds of dogs with barrels of alcohol around their necks to tempt enemy soldiers and get them uh, intoxicated. Did he ever actually try to implement that? Not that I know of. I I seriously doubt he did. Um, That was he was trying to think up ways to get to the Ploesti oil fields in um, Romania, (laughs) and and it was that was one of the critical locations to Germany in the Second World War because it was their largest source of oil. And so it was extremely heavily defended. I mean, it was just, you know, anti-aircraft guns everywhere, large amounts of troops. And so, you know, Pike is this, is this figure who's largely forgotten because he didn't actually contribute a whole lot. Uh-huh. None, oh, not many of his plans actually made it very far. But he was their go-to guy for when they didn't have any solution to a problem. He would come up with these bizarre solutions. That's as Pike, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is a true eccentric genius. I mean, this guy laid in bed all day. He peed in bottles. I mean, this is Howard Hughes from England. <laughs> he was a very weird guy. That, I, I just love the idea that, that that someone would actually plan that out and just you know you just you just kind of visualize the scene of a bunch of soldiers out there and this giant pack of dogs comes running in and you know what's that <laughs> hey look they got barrels of booze around their neck and then, yeah. and then to think that they're <laughs> yeah. all gonna just get inebriated and pass out all right move <laughs> in boys they're they're drunk now well he had a bunch of ideas on on 
that sort of thing, like sending hookers in there to distract <laughs> the guys. I mean, it was, it was really just like, it, it was like brainstorming, but those were his ideas. That's that's funny. Scott, Scott speaking of uh, crazy things that, uh, like like that, did you see the, the submarine they got off the coast of Costa Rica? Uh, oh, the 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 drug set? running. Yeah, I heard about that. I read the article. I didn't see any pictures of it, but yeah, I yeah, let me see it. But like, I guess they just like noticed these like plastic pipes sticking out of the water, and they were just you know it was like old school, you know, breathing from the surface and and putting that in there. Yeah, I mean, crazy. really, that's that's a good example of uh, you know how war of a sort can affect ingenuity, where these guys go to desperate lengths to 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 avoid coast guard and. You know customs and stuff, so they build a submarine. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> who else would think of building a freaking submarine? <laughs> oh yeah, well, and it's. I think it's interesting too, as far as um, how warfare has evolved beyond the rules that you were supposed to follow through time. I mean, you've got like, you know, the really old school military days where you had, you know, pretty much everybody march in formation into giant lines against each other, and then just. You know, politely fire away until there was one side left standing. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, the uh, early Americans turned that around by starting to hide behind trees and introduce more guerrilla warfare. And the Britons thought that was just, you know, so uncouth and uncivilized. But, you know, they had to adapt to in order to survive back. And, you know, then you get more, you know, Intentionally taking out civilians along with war, to you know the terrorism ty- type aspect of it, and it's just it's interesting to see how all of that, you know, stuff we consider barbaric now is almost along the same lines uh, that, that it was back, you know, 200 years ago on the other foot, you know. Well, I, I think those examples you mentioned are really good because it, it shows the way um, strategy really hinges on technology heavily. Like, uh, you, you'll have, you know, like the British-based hunters from the United States who were used to, you know, carefully aiming their shots and sniping animals, basically. Right. So th- these Americans, you know, have their hunting rifles, and they shoot the British who are, you know, used to fighting these wars where the guns never hit, and they just fly off in all directions. And even more so, that happened in the Civil War, where we were still fighting in lines and pickets, pretty much. And then there's sharpshooters who just, you know, mow people down. And right, now, uh, the ultimate example is World War One, where the, the strategy was just still decades behind the technology, and people would be charging into machine guns and just, you know, whole platoons of soldiers dying in seconds. I mean, it was just butchery. Right, and with World War One, you get probably the introduction of using gas and chemicals yeah. in addition to it. And then, you know, with the... Obviously, the big advance in World War Two is the the bombs that that do all the talking for you, as well. Now, now you met, now the atomic bomb that obviously ends everything in Japan and more or less ends the war as a whole. Um, they were trying to do this in Germany, uh, obviously uh, yeah. unsuccessfully. But I mean, how how close did Germany really get to uh, pulling that off? I mean, we we obviously got their scientists over here. That, that that helped us complete the job. So I mean, could we have really seen a, a situation where Germany got the atomic bomb first? Um, I, you know that that is one of those questions that will probably be discussed among historians for for decades. I would say the easiest answer and the most likely answer is no. 
the Germans really did not have a shot at having a working atomic bomb before we did. I mean, we we had our fully mobilized war economy heavily devoted to to building this atomic bomb. Uh-huh. And I mean, a lot of that was, you know, the Manhattan Project. A lot of that expense was creating enough radioactive material to actually build the bombs. Um, the Germans did not devote anywhere near that percentage or quantity of resources to constructing their atomic bombs. Uh-huh. And, you know, in my book I talk about uh, Kurt Diebner, who uh, uh, has recently sort of come to light as a figure who had an alternate atomic bomb project in Germany to Heisenberg's. And Diebner was more of like a political operator than Heisenberg was. Uh-huh. And, and so... Some people see that that he could have built this atomic bomb, although it was an inferior atomic bomb, and that's you know what I go with as a hypothetical in my book. But I still I don't think it was likely, and I really have to look skeptically on the accounts that he tested the atomic bomb in Germany. Um, now was was he the, the the gentleman that was kidnapped by the Russians and 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 uh, had to? Oh no no, um, that was a uh, Sanger. They they tried to kidnap him. Uh, the French found out they were trying to kidnap Sanger. He was the guy who invented the the silver silver bird, the uh, antipodal bomber. Uh-huh. And uh, the French intelligence service found out he was uh, working in France after the war, and the French intelligence service found out that Stalin wanted to kidnap this guy because I guess Stalin had gotten a hold of information that he was a genius, and so he fled to the United States and worked for us. I just thought that when I was reading it, it, it made me think about, um, you know, like the old Flash Gordon movies where Ming the Merciless is... Sees him. Dark, <laughs> you know, like, they've got this captive scientist and he's forced to create this death ray, or else. You know, I mean, could, could a scientist captured under duress truly be coaxed to design things for uh, the enemy? In oh, I think... They could have probably. I, I don't think Sanger was like one of the. He wasn't a Diebner type figure where Diebner was ideologically really in bed with the Nazis. You know, he believed in the Nazis and that's how he got so much attention from them. Whereas uh-huh. Sanger was just a scientist working for the Nazis. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, he would have seen Stalin as just another Nazi. I mean, he would have probably resented being kidnapped. Yeah. <laughs> but but eventually, I mean, if you're just, if you see that you're not going to escape and your life isn't that bad there, you know, I'm sure he would have been treated well if he'd produced results. So he would have just gone along with it would be my guess. Now, now one guy you kind of have like that in the world today is... Um Kim Jong-il in North Korea, yeah. <laughs> who is uh, pretty famous for kidnapping people and getting them to to do stuff, as far his own countrymen at least. But I mean, you know, from, I think in one case he even, <laughs> it was like a popular Spielberg type film director, he had uh, kidnapped and, and had to make him uh, his own personal yeah. monster Yeah, movie. he did. But, um, they've obviously got a, a fledgling weapons program, and how successful it really is or not still remains to be seen. But I mean, is do you, do you think there's something more to to what they've got to offer, or is it a lot of posturing just to be taken seriously from from what you? Been well, I, I always saw saw like um, you know World War Two was this time when there were these towering figures like Stalin and Hitler, and especially like just the whole you know legion of villains from the Nazis sure. like Himmler and Goering and Goebbels. 
I, I always saw like James Bond's villains, especially early on in James Bond, were based on Nazis. You know, th- uh-huh. these guys are just these evil, megalomaniacal guys who scheme. And then Kim Jong Il, I see, is based on James Bond villains. So he's like getting his secondhand evil Nazi kick over there in 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 North Korea. Um, as far as being a threat, I, I you know I don't know. I, I think. I think the madness of Kim Jong-il is a little overstated. I think he it, it is a goofball, and he's kind of evil, but I don't think he's, you know, just drooling mad. I don't think he's going to destroy his country. He's not rubbing his hands together and saying <laughs> kitty. No, he's not, he's, he's not twirling his mustache. <laughs> well, back to, to Jeffrey Pike with the, with the uh, barrels of alcohol around the dogs there. Um, he went on to push for this giant aircraft carrier that was made out of ice, essentially. Yep. Uh, and it, he actually had a special kind of ice uh, that he was inventing that was a mixture of wood pulp uh, and ice. I mean, how, how could something like that even? I mean, that that obviously never actually got invented, right? Uh, well, they you know they tried to build uh, like a test version of it in Canada. Um, that really started as as kind of you know one of his ideas that seems good, but kind of a little amusing. Like he he thought just okay, well let's tow icebergs you know from the Arctic or wherever, stick engines on them, and we can use them as ships. I mean, what is a torpedo going to do to you know a, a five hundred foot across iceberg? I mean, it's not going to do anything. Well, that, the, that, the idea of that being that, that steel was just so ridiculously expensive to use for things like that, maybe yeah. an ice alternative would be more economical. Uh, well, that and you know he, the obvious, you know, just looking at it. Well, hey, there's icebergs floating everywhere. Let's just grab them. Uh huh. But you don't really stop and think. Well, how the hell do you fucking grab an iceberg? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you how do you get an iceberg somewhere? How do you make it go around? It's going to be melting all the time, uh, you know. That, so, so that transformed into building this ship out of ice, you know, taking blocks of ice and building a ship. Yet there still were issues because blocks of ice still melted faster than they wanted. They, you know, they they were more fragile and brittle, harder to work with. Especially they they were difficult to work with because ice is very unpredictable as a building block. Uh-huh. You know, like one, you could have two ice cubes that look the same. You could, you know, put like weight on one and it is fine. Put like much less weight on the other one, it'll just, you know, fracture and shear apart. So they wanted to create like a consistent, tough, and long lasting version of ice. So they mixed in wood pulp and they got the this stuff called piecrete, which, you know, obviously <laughs> is named after him. That's great. And you, you mentioned even that, uh, now, I, I, now, forgive me for maybe mixing some of your fictional scenarios with with what really happened here. Mm-hmm. But um, they 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 found that that was actually a rather tough form of ice that you could fire a gun into it and it barely. Yeah, that is that is it, true. Right? He he demoed it for um, for Mountbatten um, and you know several Allied naval commanders, and Mountbatten took the 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 block of piecrete and the block of ice. And the block of ice shattered, and then he took his gun out and shot the block of piecrete, and it didn't, and it bounced off and hit one of the the, the naval commanders in the leg. <laughs> so, so it was that really happened, and it was quite a scene. I mean, the people were probably pretty pissed off about that, 
But uh, it, it proved yeah. that, you know, these blocks were much tougher than ice. Now, the, the Germans were, were actively pursuing, at one point, the, the creation of an orbiting space station and, and other spacecraft as well. And we certainly know from scientists that came to America that they may have had the expertise, if not the money, to, to pull that off over time. I mean, could, I guess this kind of ties into the atomic question, but, I mean, could Germany have really... Uh, l- let's say the war was not an issue at the time and that Germany was just coexisting with their neighbors in the in the name of science i mean could they have beat everybody to space or or did they just really have the ideas and not really the means to to go ahead with it well you know i think at the end of world war ii i would call anyone a liar who said that germany was not at the very head of the pack when it came to the space age i i mean they were the masters of rocketry they were you know the the closest to to becoming astronauts basically uh-huh. um now to to say that they were actively pursuing this space station that's not really true um von Braun, who then came over to the United States after the war and really helped our space program a hell of a lot um he he was fixated on it personally and and really the Nazis did not like this idea all that much they kind of tried to you know focus on the rockets, you know, that sort of thing. But he kept developing it. He kept testing engines that were more suited to, you know, intercontinental purposes or space-lifting purposes. Um, But, you know, to answer your hypothetical question, I think yes. I think if there had not been a war, Germany would have been the first in space. Or if there had been a much, you know, more limited war that, you know, like, you know, maybe they didn't, war didn't break out, like they took Austria or whatever, but you know, God, thank God, they didn't make it to space first. I can only imagine what yeah. what the world would be like if they had filled the the sky with satellites instead of you know the United States and Russia. Now, now it's interesting to parallel, you know, Germany's experience in the war with Japan's. I mean, looking at the two different bad guys. Yeah. And and why is it that? I mean, you don't think that... I mean, certainly with, you know, computers and and, and electronics and whatnot, I mean, Japan has always, in modern times, been on the forefront of some pretty amazing things. But why is it that, for the most part, Japan was a a, a fairly low-tech presence in World War II? I mean, you you know, something as simple as just crashing manned airplanes into aircraft carriers and just, you know, more or less classic brute force. I mean, w- w- was there really not this kind of ingenuity going on in Japan at the time? Or? Oh, I, I think there was an explosion of ingenuity going on in Japan. And, you know, to be fair, I, I did not cover the Japanese very much in my book. I, I don't have any invention devoted to the Japanese, but they did have some pretty out-there inventions. And um, but, but, but I think Japan was starting from a, a much more backwards position than the European powers. Um, you you got to remember, Japan was not as technical, technologically advanced as as these other countries were at the start of the nineteenth or at the start of the twentieth century. So uh-huh. they had a lot of catching up to do, and they managed to to pretty much come even with with all the other countries. So you know, it's not really surprising to me that then they've gone on to, in many ways, surpass you know the United States and Europe in terms of technology. Right, I, I guess uh, I guess uh, things ended so quickly uh, once 
you know, we were able to drop bombs and whatnot over mm-hmm. there. Maybe that kind of <laughs> put a pretty quick stop to a lot of <laughs> things <laughs> along that regard. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, now, are there any fantastic... We were talking about, you know, the World War II stuff here, and, and you had mentioned there's still a lot of really neat things going on. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, reading not too long ago about some interesting laser and sonar type weapons and, you know, weapons that are maybe not even lethal weapons, but can do, you know, mm-hmm. crazy things to people. Are there some really neat things out there that that, that people don't know about that are, that are getting invented, or that, that a lot of people don't know about, I should say? Or? Um, well, I think you, you hit on two of the big ones, which is just... The, the laser technology. Try to steal your on. answer there. Yeah, well, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, they're working on lasers to intercept bombs and missiles and that sort of thing. And they're uh, a big focus has been on less than lethal technology um, it, because you know we're trying to be the benign superpower. We we don't we would rather shoot you with goo that makes you stick to the ground instead of you know <laughs> kill you. Um, I think a lot of the the real advances you'll see are are more practical. Um, mm-hmm. There have been a lot of there's been a lot of focus lately on you know like the OICW. I God I don't know what the acronym stands for, but it's what is it's, that? it's it's <laughs> it's it's this like system of interlinking technology and weaponry for infantrymen in the United States, and I think it's kind of been placed on the back burner as they see you know. Just you know, getting armor on a Humvee is more important right now than you know having a grenade launcher that can explode in midair and you know kill people behind a barricade or whatever. Uh-huh. So I, I think practicality is, is taking a big role. I think robotics has really shown itself as as being one of the leading fields in military technology. This war, um, you look at the Predator, the Global Hawk, um, really. Unmanned vehicles have have really started to come into their own. There was there were unmanned vehicles used as early as World War II. Uh, the Germans had a vehicle called the Goliath. Um, shows up in video games from time to time. In fact, which is kind of a surprise considering it was not that widely used. But um, it's pretty fantastic to think about, though. Either way, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They had a remote-controlled little tank that they would drive around and you know explode barricades or, you know, bunkers or whatever. Um, but I think this that's the big field for the military for the next 20 years is, is automated systems and, you know, interfacing with information technology. I, I think, you know, having those robots and, and those unmanned planes and stuff do the work that soldiers, you know, would normally have to do will limit casualties, and that's extremely important in a country like ours where if the people don't like it, it's going to be over. Now, thinking about modern situations that could happen, I mean, one thing you don't think about is is China uh, very often as far as, I mean, they they clearly got something that, that many countries don't have in the ways of just of manpower. I mean, yeah. you know, they could... You know, I mean, I guess certainly any kind of ground action against China would be unpursuable, I guess, in any form, right? I mean, I guess just having a, a big population is yeah, one of the better technological advantages uh, of yeah. them all, I suppose, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah uh, you know, I think the China is 
on parity with us technologically at this mm-hmm. point. Um, we go to China to produce and you know manufacture so much of our military technology that they have it already. I mean, sure. other than like the the low run super secret technology, like you know lenses for spy planes or something, they're mm-hmm. they're going to just be able to produce it and use it for their own military. <laughs> and, copy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think you know you see that now they're starting to implement technology that focuses more on providing a you know a complete package to an infantryman or providing a you know a high tech tank as opposed to swarming someone with 150 tanks and that is going to be carried throughout their entire military over time and that you know they're going to have a military juggernaut that eclipses our own as long as they can keep up eco- economically with the demands of equipping you know their enormous standing army i think it's multiple millions mm-hmm. now as far as um you know something uh you know uh perhaps a d- what you might call a deranged invention that we don't know how much of it actually existed or not from the 80s that that, that a lot of us grew up with was uh the whole star wars yeah. Idea. And, I yeah. Mean, how how much of that do, do you think? I mean, or do you know much about how much of that really existed, or how much of it was just a way to outspend the Russians? Um, I think I think that is the answer. Um, it gave it was it was basically an ingenious press ploy to to you know say to the Soviet Union, we just rendered your missile technology irrelevant. Because we can, you know, destroy your missiles as they're coming down on us, and I, I think if if much of it had really worked, you would see it being more widely used now. I mean, you look at the the, the lasers that we talked about earlier; they're they're still not very good. They're still not that effective at you know catching stuff in midair. They're still you know working out the kinks. To think that that was fully functional in the 80s is I, I don't buy it. Are we even at a point where where a destructive laser can can be used as a weapon? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, you you could do that. You know, there you could probably buy a kit that would build a laser that would put a hole in your hand if you sat there long enough. Oh wow! <laughs> I mean, um, but it does. The point of the lasers is they blow stuff up really quickly by heating it, like stuff like missiles and artillery rounds. So that does take just unbelievable amounts of of power and chemicals. I mean, they're chemical lasers. I think for almost all, I think all of them are. So uh-huh. you know, it, it's yeah, I it, we are to that point that that you're talking about, but I I don't think you're going to see laser guns like Star Wars or anything. Or orbiting satellites that can blast uh, yeah, through space and take yeah, out a city. There's not going to be an ion cannon to shoot at Nod when their tanks <laughs> roll across our, our base. Well, well what's your favorite uh, invention in the whole book, uh, whether it was developed or not? I mean, what was what was the most fun uh, thing for you to write about? Um, I think my favorite invention, which you know is one of the ones that did not really get that far, but it, it's the rat tank. Um, that was a, a, a you know a proposed as a thousand tons. It would have been I think over two thousand or nearly two thousand tons. Just this immense tank the size of like a barn and then some, <laughs> with a, a cruiser turret from a, a a cruiser ship on the top as the tank's turret. I mean it was just completely outrageous on every level. 
and I, I love it. I mean, it would it would have been such a cool thing to have one in a museum. You know, get your kids to climb around on this three-story tall tank. It would have. It been almost t- reminded me of uh, reading about it, uh, sort of like a, a Jawa sand crawler. Uh, that you, had, you know, just some yeah, ridiculously yeah. outrageously big thing. Or like, like the AT-ATs. I mean, is that sort of scale of just you know crews, double-digit crews, like thirty people living in this tank as it drives around. It was like a ship. <laughs> it was a boat with treads. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, just, just to find uh, terrain that could support that may have been yeah. difficult. I mean, it could certainly not cross bodies of water or, or, or things like that. Uh, you know, the, there'd probably be no bridge in, in Europe that could have supported this. Yeah, thing, right? I mean, yeah. It, it, its only real possibility would be to find very limited ford points on rivers like where the water was really shallow and the mud was not real deep and it could just drive through those just because it was so big but uh, like all bridges i think would have collapsed under the weight of this tank it could not have driven across any bridge it was that heavy that condensed into you know to one spot right well, i like too with a lot of your scenarios i mean you basically show that you know, no matter how big and crazy and destructive some of these weapons can be made, with just the right intelligence and, and human strategy, these things could be taken out rather easily. Sometimes just by the right five or six guys running up and and attaching some yeah. stuff to these tanks. You know, well, whatever, tanks, you know? tanks will always be at risk to infantry because yeah. I mean, it's just impractical to build a tank that could withstand any possible size explosion that someone could put in a bag full of explosives and throw at the tank. I mean, eventually, the tank will just not be able to move, and so what's the point of building it? Which the rat was almost to that point. I think it moved like at seven kilometers an hour or something. Wow. You know. Now, you mentioned uh, that th- there is some, you know, some of these things sort of did get off the drawing board and uh yeah. and some prototypes were made and you, and you and forgive me for getting but uh you had mentioned there is a museum that has uh <coughs> one of these devices on display that's maybe in a state of disrepair but uh yeah the well the Russians have a a, a mouse tank and I think the Americans also have a mouse tank um those were their prototype tanks their test beds and then um there is a museum, like storage facility, that has a copy of the the Horton Horton Nine B um, aircraft, but it's I've seen pictures of it and it is not restored at all, which is a shame because it's a really cool airplane. I, I think you know, it's it's historic in that it has influenced the designs of so many other aircraft, it would be nice to see it restored in a museum. Yeah, I mean, for, for those who may not know the Horton uh, IXB, uh, it, it really, I mean, the best way to describe it is it looks like a, a bat wing almost, like a, a jet, you know, from... Yeah. Or, I mean, it certainly, uh, was it the B... Oh, God, I don't B, know. The B-2? Yeah, I mean, it looks, it's it's kind of, you know, something it, from the 40s, you know, still lives on to this day. Oh, I thought you were, yeah, it, it looks like the, the B-2 stealth bomber, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In fact, I, I, I'm so stupid with this stuff. I remember once I, uh, when I was 18 or 19, I was applying for a job at a, a model warehouse. These, you know, they had all these uh, home bo- models that you can build of just airplanes and, you know, all Kits. these different things. Yeah, and... um. 
the guy was like, well, how much do you know about this stuff? And, uh, because, you know, you're going to have to really know these aircraft off the back <laughs> of your hand. And, and and I was trying to fake it, you know, and he's like, oh, what's the, the F-14, and what's this, and, uh, uh, that's that's some kind of airplane, right? And just <laughs> he just sent me on my way, but that was uh. But you know, for someone who's been been pretty ignorant and scared of uh, military stuff, and you know, I don't know uh, uh the Mach five from a V three to uh, any of these numbers just yeah. kind of come in and out of my head. But I mean, this is a very uh, a fun, accessible book. I mean, aside from all the stuff, there's just these uh gorgeous uh, color uh, illustrations that that are. Uh, yeah, Josh Pass um, was the color illustrator for the book, and Mike Dosher did the black and white line art. They were both fantastic to work with. And yeah, um, yeah these illustrations are all like original, just for this book, right? I mean, it, absolutely. It, these, yeah. uh, they look like very well precise mechanical technical illustrations. That it, you know, and of course these just really great fanciful color illustrations. That well, it really brings this to life. Uh, a lot. In fact, it made me. Uh, I mentioned to you before. I was like, man, I would sure love to see some video footage of some of these things in action yeah. as well. I mean, maybe, maybe someday that'll be the next step of uh, my tankish fight. <laughs> the TV series. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, thanks again for uh, for joining us. And uh, people can pick up this book uh, at Amazon.com. My tank is fight. Uh, you know, perfect for. I, I think this is a, a book that you know it sounds cliche, but young and old alike would really enjoy it. You know, if you've got a uh, you know, some veterans in the family that they like reading stuff. I think this is a really good uh, book that they they may not know about. It. Just anybody interested in military history for sure will just eat through this book. But you know, even if that's not your thing, if you just like fantastic stories and and neat inventions and gizmos and just just you know, even if you just like, f- what I also like about this book is you can kind of just flip around and read whatever interests you. You don't necessarily have to read it from start to finish either. You know, it's got a really nice. Uh, it, well, thank you. Thing, um, but, uh, thank you for all the nice things you're saying about yeah. it. Um, it may be I, the best book since the Bible. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it's read. really good. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> if it was only scratch and sniff, I would I would be completely happy with it. It, well, it, it is <laughs> it is very much a bathroom book. This is the kind of book that you sit in your bathroom, you know, when you're doing your business in there, and you can read, you know, a chapter, half a chapter. And not worry about finding your place the next time you come back in there. So for for someone who's been thinking uh, about ever writing a book, I mean, you you obviously kind of had the roots of this based on some articles that you wrote, and you fleshed uh-huh. it out into this thing that was far bigger than you ever dreamed. But I mean, f- is this something you'd eagerly like to try again, or is it like, oh my god, what a draining experience? I I I don't know. If oh I'm no, no, absolutely not. I mean, I. There were there were some times when it was very stressful working on the book, but I would be a total baby if I complained about that. I yeah. mean, this is a dream to write a book, and I will write as many books as they let me. Um, you know, I I don't I don't know if I'll ever see a dime from this book because you know I put everything into it, and I don't give a damn. You know, it was that much fun to do. And, I, you know, some of this stuff I, I selfishly included in the book because I just wanted to convince these guys to draw pictures of it. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, I can write a chapter about this, and then I get to make this other guy do a color picture of it. So great. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's a, certainly a labor of love. I mean, I, I th- and something we really haven't discussed in the interview here, but it's, it's a very funny book. I mean, just there's so many little snarky, dry comments about everything. 
you know, I mean, you, you, you're sitting here reading about these, these horrible machines that can kill people, and I'm, you know, laughing my ass off on the airplane while I was reading some of these oh, things. Thanks. It definitely, uh, it's, it's got a, a fun sense of humor about it throughout as well, uh, too. I mean, so to take something, did you, did you find it difficult to keep it, uh, to, to, to make it, if I, well, that's a stupid question, forget I asked it, but <laughs> of course you didn't find it difficult, you did it. But, um, um, well, great. Well, um, I won't ask you what, what you got writing in the future, so nobody copies your idea, because this certainly <laughs> is a, was it was a great book. I, I'll just say I, I would not probably do another Tank and Spite book. I, I really <laughs> not nothing against the book, and I, you know people love it, um, but I just you know I don't want to do the same thing twice. I don't want to become the guy who writes the World War Two inventions books. Right. I, I, it, it was it was fun to do once, but I'll move on to something else next. You want to want to be that guy? Huh? You don't want to be the like like was it a, the Mel Brookson who you, you know now is the, the zombie, zombie guy. warfare yeah. guy? Yeah, <laughs> I, I wish I was him because he's made billions of dollars off those fucking books. Yeah, I wish I was him just to have Mel Brooks as your dad. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, that's, that's a blast. <laughs> So, but oh, we also could uh, check out your work uh, almost weekly now on something awful. Still, is that? Uh, uh, yeah, I write three times a week. Actually, three times a week yeah. on something awful. Uh, you're probably the longest uh, tenured writer that, that's uh, ever written for that website. And just you know, boy, you just pretty much whatever strikes your fancy, uh, you could write about anything that you want uh, on that site. So yeah, it's kind pretty of fun. much. It's a good, uh, you know, some of the best. You know, underrated humor writing anybody can uh, read is on somethingawful.com. Well, and second best. I think the best out there is definitely Retro Crush. <laughs> yeah, yeah, our, our funniest uh, <laughs> gay uh, TV butlers articles coming out. Boy, don't, don't miss out on that. I, I bet Mr. Belvedere wins. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for talking with us, uh, man oh, thank you very cat much. hating Zach Parsons, and uh, <laughs> my tank is fight, and. Uh, can uh, check out his book and uh, go to somethingawful.com and read his writing three times a week. So it's great talking to you. Thanks, Zach. All right. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you go to retrocrush.com, right on the front page, we've got the text version of this uh, interview and also got a lot of pictures to accompany it as well. So feel free to check that out. As always, you can call the Retro Crush hotline at 916-231-9480 or email us at rberry at retrocrush.com. Have a great day, and we'll be back with episode 102 very shortly. Thanks for listening.